Rick Perlstein is a historian and author of several best-selling books, including most recently Reaganland, which is now available for paperback. This is Rick Perlstein. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. Rick, thank you for, uh, for joining me once again. Uh, it's a pleasure, as always, to have you. Duncan, uh, it's great to be back. I'm following uh, your work uh, avidly. <laughs> Um, well, as have I, because you uh, you recently have published the paperback version, um, or maybe it hasn't come out yet, but it's coming out this week. Tomorrow. Tomorrow. Today, the, the 17th is the, the, the official day. Excellent. Of Reaganland, which, as I understand, is the final book in this series you've written about the, the conservative uh, revolution in this country. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about putting together an anthology of my kind of journalism and essays I've been writing since 2003, which I've been writing kind of in dialogue with the history in a lot of ways kind of provides uh, sort of uh, takes takes up certain aspects of the story up to the present. Uh, but yeah, I don't plan on writing any big history books on that subject uh, in that particular timeline, as the kids put it now. Yes, that's... I. I I would like to persuade you against that. <laughs> I, I've really enjoyed um, this entire series. And one of the things that's interesting about Reaganland, for a book named after Ronald Reagan, it spends a lot of time talking about Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Um, well, I've written about it. I got a piece coming out in The Nation in a couple of weeks, a review of a biography. So I see. it'll state you. Did, did you just feel like the, the Reagan years themselves were maybe less important to the story than oh no absolutely not no 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 so i'm um well first of all i conceived of the story uh way back in the mid 90s when i was thinking about the project as a series that would basically explain the rise of ronald reagan so that was kind of the original conception Mm. and one reason i've stuck to it was well you know 25 years of work is a nice chunk half a lifetime literally uh uh so you know um i feel you know i feel like uh, i'm kind of earned my spurs to move on to different adventures but you know a, a really interesting part of this is um what it's like writing about stuff you remember yeah. right and it's a totally different kind of bag uh and you know the idea of historical distance is a real thing right and so I was 11 uh, when Ronald Reagan was elected. And, um, you know, I mean, Reagan's presidency occupies my you know, adolescence, you know, heading up to going off to college in 1988. And one problem, as you've noticed, I'm sure that the books get bigger and bigger. Um, and once you get into um, the minutia of everyday life, it's one thing to recover it from documents and yeah. media. It's another to add that, you know, extra matrix of memory. And I think it would, it, it would be uh, interestingly unmanageable. Um, you know, I mean, I think about, you know, what could I write about in the 80s? I think certain things having to do with policy within the Reagan administration are certainly interesting, but I think a lot of that's been kind of done well. I could definitely point in the direction of good books about the Reagan years. Uh, I think that, um, you know, culturally, it's certainly amazingly interesting, but that's, that's where it gets like, you know, super intimate, you know, um, 
And I think that um, um, writing about the kind of stuff I do with politics kind of in, 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 uh, in, in dialogue um, with culture, um, I just think that there are better people to do it, you know? Mm. Uh, I mean, I just don't think I have the critical distance. I think there are, you know, a lot of interesting subjects, the kind of, the kind of dialectic within the Reagan administration, the Reagan constituency, the Reagan policy team, Congress, between, uh, let's say, the more extreme aspects of the Reagan coalition and the kind of pragmatism of Reagan is super interesting. You know, um, I get that in kind of essayistic ways and different things. Um, but also I have other projects in mind. Uh, I mean, I want to write, and I've mentioned this a few times in interviews because it's my kind of attempt to ward off <laughs> people getting all up in my business about what I should do, maybe. Yeah. Uh, although I love, I love you guys. Uh, I, love, I, love, <laughs> I love my readers. Um, is a book about the 1830s, a global history that has to do with how um, market culture spread across the world, mm. inspired by um, a thinker who's kind of my hero named Karl Polanyi, who kind of in a lot of ways was an alternative to Karl Marx. So I just think that would be really fun. I've been saving, you know, kind of articles, research, book titles for that for years. And I think that's my next big kind of five-year project. Um, I'm ready to I'm ready to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans, you know, forged in 9-11, you know. Well, it, it is interesting when you, you said there about the critical distance where obviously you're not uh, like a Reagan conservative, uh, but you're writing about this movement. And yeah. I, I will say I have uh, Republican conservative friends who listen to the show and listen to the previous episode that we had. And, uh -huh. uh, we're like, yeah, these these lefties are writing about, you know, our beloved figures. Like they're just just to attack them. Do they love Reagan? Uh, uh, well, yeah, of course, you know. And, I mean, um, I think I think actually the, the the image of Reagan has probably evolved in ways that are interesting. But anyway, we can get to that later. Yes, and I, I guess what I'm asking is, I think I'm attacking him. No, I I don't think you're attacking them. I think you're being very fair. Um, but. Clearly, that's something that I'm, I'm sure you gave thought to that. Like, okay, how do I maintain some kind of distance? Right. What was that process like? Well, uh, when it comes to someone like Reagan, uh, I mean, like I say, you know, he was my president growing up, you know, and uh, he was the penumbra, you know, his presidency was, you know, the context for the rest of my life. Um, so um, in a lot of ways, I'm trying to figure out, you know, what that was about and what he was about. Um, as far as thinking about uh, how to be fair to my subjects, you know, what kind of, um, um, ideological position I want to land on, I try to think about that as little as possible. Mm. Uh, I mean, I probably um, could be accused of lacking a bit of self-awareness if I say that I try to tell the truth as I see it without fear or favor, right? Um, while at the same time making my um, ideological priors 
pretty obvious. Certainly anyone can Google me, right? Read my, the rest of my work. Um, but another thing is, um, I think that people who decide, who, who uh, quote unquote, um, you know, want to um, write and self-consciously try to write unbiased books and think that's a way to kind of escape ideology, turn out to be obsessed with ideology. Hmm. And they have to think about ideology all the time because every time they have to write a sentence, they have to decide whether the sentence is too far left and too far right. And they're always kind of, you know, kind of taking that measure. Um, And I think that can get in the way of letting the documents tell the story. Uh, And um, I frankly am in a, good place, especially at this late date in my career that I don't really have to think about too much about what people think about me. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I, if people accuse, if someone accuses me about, of, of being, you know, biased, I don't care. You know, it's a cliche, you know, if, if someone says, you know, oh, I get attacked from the left and the right, so I must be doing something right. Mm-hmm. But I do get attacked from the left and the right. And, and I think like the worst thing a political writer or thinker can do, can think is, is to kind of self-consciously think about what their, you know, ideological sort of um, point on a spectrum should be. It's just a giant distraction from the work, I think. Yeah, yes. And, and when you say well-documented, that, that, that is definitely the apt term because this, uh, all of your books, but this most recent book, Reagan Land, is very well-documented. And I have a couple questions or a few questions mm-hmm. I want to ask about the book. Um, when I say a lot of this is about Jimmy Carter, one of the things mm-hmm. that I thought was really interesting was how you described the, the election of Jimmy Carter, where his campaign managers were trying to quote, market sincerity. Yes. Um, and I was wondering if you could talk about that a, a little bit in the context of how it seems like all the elections since that have basically been, you know, I'm the guy who's anti-Washington. Like, no, yeah. I'm anti-Washington. It's like, everybody just wants to be the outside. Yeah. You know. That's part of the story I tell. And that's also told in the previous book, which covers 1973 to 1976 and a little bit more of how he, um, how his team actually put together, you know, the product that was Jimmy Carter yeah. uh, masterfully, both in his part and on his advisor's part. I mean, a friend of mine uh, who writes for the AP tried out an idea that he's kind of like kept in, wants to put in his file for his Jimmy Carter obituary that he's writing. I wrote one of those, by the way, in like 20, 20- 2013, you know, yeah. people write a bit choice in advance, you know, and guys like Carter kind of frustrate that attempt by, you know, living and living and living and living. Right. But he said that Jimmy Carter was the um, singer, 70s singer songwriter president. Hmm. And uh, so I don't know how much, you know, like, you know, James Taylor or Carol King or, but these were guys who, you know, kind of wore flannel shirts, peasant dresses and completely, you know, stripped, tried to strip their music of all pretension and tell about their feelings, you know, and write about existential situations and um, moved kind of pop music from this kind of very politicized grand, you know, um, you know, they say you want a revolution vibe to the terrain of emotional intimacy, right? And so that was very much the image that Jimmy Carter put together in 1976, this guy who, you know, farmed the same land his farm family had been farming since the 18th century and had pictures and videos of himself, you know, sifting the soil, you know, wearing a flannel suit, you know, in an invisible bridge. I talk about how they, they derived the peanut as the key symbol of the campaign. Like if you go on eBay and 
Google Jimmy Carter peanut, you'll find all kinds of peanut swag, right? Um, because it kind of suggested humility and that humility was not their long suit, which is a nice, nicely kind of uh, thoughtful uh, self for. That was one of the things, one of the, one of the riffs I make in Reaganland is that not only were, was kind of the marketing of candidates um, um, brought to kind of a quantum, quantum level of intensity, people talked about it all all the time. <laughs> so they would kind of t- tell their secrets, you know? Uh, so there's are, there are these profiles of Jimmy Carter's image makers talking about how they make the image, but they did it well enough that people still kind of maintain this image of him. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, you know, I get a lot of the historically specific matrix about why this seemed so powerful at the time and so important. And the biggest answer is Watergate happened. And this like profound, unprecedented level of disgust with the federal government and all sorts of institutions um, and just created this massive market for people who, you know, Jimmy Carter's biggest applause line is I'm not a lawyer. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, so many of the, the Watergate felons were lawyers. That was one of the things people talked about all the time. Right. You know, I'm not from Washington, you know, huge applause, you know, Um and the idea that he was, you know, an outsider. And yes, that became a very useful riff um, because, you know, it works. And because distrust in institutions is, if anything, you know, intensified in the years to come. Um, you know, Barack Obama did it, you know, even though he was probably our most institutionalist president since, you know, Dwight David Eisenhower, you know? Um, yeah. What's your reaction to that? Well, it, it's it's very it's very interesting the fact that and, and as you talk about in the book, there the his campaign managers are not you know hiding this stuff. They're on the record explaining to people how we're selling it, and it's curious to me. And I wonder your thoughts on this. Where you have a guy like Nixon, who mm-hmm. uh, you know they have the book uh, the selling of the president, where they talk about Nixon's campaign and how they yeah. really manage the media. But the selling they did in, in, in the Nixon campaign was checkers and this was chess, you know, it's just like quantum. And, and of course, you know, candidates have been doing this forever. You know, the Whig candidate was a Buchanan or somebody who's, you know, like whose slogan was um, log cabin and hard cider, you know, mm-hmm. he was just a guy from the frontier. So obviously these riffs are definitely, you know, but there's a mass media context, right? And um, I remember there was this really stuffy conservative, the guy before Goldwater, Robert Taft. And there's this famous picture of him like holding a pheasant that he'd supposedly shot. And he, he's wearing his like wingtips, unfortunately, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, these are old tricks, you know. Um, there were past masters of it. There was this guy named Pappy McDaniel who became governor of Texas, who, you know, had his own bluegrass band and, you know, um, Pappy, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but the 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 thing that's so interesting about Carter um, is that it hid kind of all kinds of contradictions, you know, and his manner of being, which was actually very you know kind of technocratic, you know, kind of looked at a government like a like an engineer would look at government, and uh, it also sabotaged him, right? Because like any good coalition politician, he was a master at making. Um, uh, everyone think that what he believed in was what they believed in. And um, part of his mastery of that was basically saying um, not that much about policy, but lots about feelings, which was, you know, the advice of one of the most famous of these in- image makers, this guy, Pat Cadell, who died last year, a Trumpy, because he just was so obsessed with the idea that politicians have to 
you know, salve people's alienation. So Trump was the guy, right? Um, but this was a terrible, uh, this kind of sabotaged uh, his presidency in many ways, because I have this image in the book. I don't know if you remember it, uh, Gerald Ford's advertising guy. And Gerald Ford's guys did their own business, you know. He um, had um, a scatter plot pole that he had printed on clear plastic sheets. And each plastic sheet represented what people's feelings were about Jimmy Carter compared to Gerald Ford. You know, who was more this, who was more that, who was better on, you know, gun control, who was better. And people who had completely contradictory issues issue positions as he laid these sheets one on top of the other, the dots kind of kept on clustering around Carter. And um, so everyone thinks that he's pro-gun control. Everyone thinks he's anti-gun control. Everyone thinks he's you know, pro-abortion. Everyone thinks he's anti-abortion. And uh, so suddenly he's set himself up to you know, disappoint everyone in some way, which of course he did with aplomb by the time <laughs> yes. to, to try to be reelected. Have you read the book, uh, The Culture of Narcissism? Mm-hmm. where it, it, they talk a lot about how politics and I, I think it was written in like the 60s or 50s and, and written mass- in, came out in 1976 and 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 and, yeah. and mostly Carter read it too and Pat Cadell uh definitely read it but yeah. what's your what's your take on it well it, it's it's interesting and for people who haven't read it a lot of it is just about how we've become so much more focused on self and authenticity and my feelings. And it seems like that approach is almost antithetical to having a good like, democratic process. Do, do you agree with that at all? Yeah, it's a weird book. And I don't think it, it made a very specific technical claim about trends in child rearing since the 19th century. Yeah. So in a lot of ways, it was a very weird book um, to try and draw political lessons from. Um, so in a lot of ways, both Pat Cadell and Jimmy Carter kind of misread it pretty severely. But if you kind of go back to the big story he's telling, and this gets into me as a historian and a scholar of social theory and political theory, his big story was that basically um, parents were tough on their kids and forced them to fail and um, had all kinds of super ego style expectations about what a adult was supposed to be. And that as the 20th century became more individualistic and by the way, more capitalistic and consumeristic, which is a big part of the story that Jimmy Carter seems to have missed. Um, the idea of raising your child to kind of um, um, do his own thing or her own thing, you know, kind of took the four. And the argument, and it's all based on psychoanalysis analysis, and it's very technical, and this is why it might be right and it might be wrong, and there's really no way of telling, is that, um, in fact, that makes people less individualistic, more insecure, more neurotic. And the basic argument is that um, kids need boundaries, right? And they build that s- strong core sense of self by um, you know trying and failing, and um, by learning that there are definite rules to how the world works, and um, I you know there's there's all this interest, interesting speculation that there's so much kind of helicopter parenting going on. You know the kids today you know are always right. You know and um, you know this is kind of like the 
I think in a lot of ways, the conservative beef about, you know, millennials and all this stuff. And a lot of it is, you know, bullshit and as most generational analysis is, but this idea that um, kids in the workplace today expect to be kind of catered to, which is definitely something employers tell me in a way previous generations didn't. Um, And one of the consequences of this does seem to be according to some, some psychological thinkers is that kids are a lot more neurotic and narcissistic today. And um, there's a lot more depression and anxiety. Now, these things are very hard to argue historically for one reason. There are good reasons to be anxious <laughs> in 2021, you know, with, with the kind of the existential crisis of the planet and all the rest. But these are very, you know, high flown abstractions. Um, but I think in the case of Jimmy Carter, he was a guy who was, in fact, very nostalgic for the kind of a hard shell discipline of kind of 19th century or 20th century when he grew up, you know, kind of parenting in which he, you know, had to like get up at 4 a.m. and, you know, plant the peanuts, you know, and, um, you know, had a dad who, you know, was not shy about using the strop and was very withdrawing, you know, withholding when it came to things like affection. So I don't know if that's the byway you want to go down, but it's, it's, it's wild stuff and it's super interesting. And I think that a lot of what went on during the period of my book was um, a kind of reckoning with the, the culture of the 1960s in which there was like a lot more individualism. Yes. Yeah, and, and I, I only bring up that book mostly for that reason, because it, it was the sort of, um, it, 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 he doesn't, Jimmy Carter does not feel like the kind of guy who would be the representative of that hyper-individualistic, narcissistic culture. But in, I guess in some ways he tapped into it. But one of the things that I want to ask you about that he tapped into that a guy who you also write about in the book, Orrin Hatch, tapped into. Great. Um, uh, a guy who became a senator from Utah, right, and um, believed he could not beat this incumbent until, until I think it was some like head of the Utah Republican Party told him, you know, you could beat him for the same re- reason that Carter won, because it's anti-Washington. Um, Which is, of course, a big part of the conservative ideology, right, right? that, you know, uh, government is evil, right? So that plays into that, too. Well, and, and that's what I wanted to ask. Do you think when uh, you, you quote some Republican uh, pollster campaign person in the book saying, uh, we organize discontent, right? Do you think that there is just this amorphous blob of discontent at this point in American history that you're describing that could have been organized any which like way ideological, uh, ideologically? Absolutely. That's a really interesting question. Is there like some genius that could have somehow alighted on the planet in 1976 and figured out a way to, you know, kind of organize this amorphous plob of discontent in a way that was say progressive, right? Uh, I, um, Jimmy Carter thought he was that guy, right? Uh, and, um, you know, he clearly, did not succeed in many ways because he wasn't all that progressive, right? Uh, I think that um, there was such an exhaustion with a lot of what was what was considered liberalism in the day, um, because you know it did seem to have led us, you know, to Vietnam. You know, it seemed to have led us to uh, the stagflation, the economic ordeal of the mid 1970s of inflation and high unemployment. Um, 
And there really was no, um, and a lot of that stuff, interestingly, turned turned out to be kind of epiphenomenal. You know, it just kind of worked itself out. You know, inflation, you know, happened because these weird, you know, kind of unique things that happened in the Middle East that stopped happening. And then oil prices became, you know, volatile and not astronomical, right? Um, so, you know, the old liberal um, nostrums were, we're going to use the federal treasury to um, help build the middle class by creating middle class jobs, for example, and social insurance to kind of give people uh, a leg up in hard times. But those things really seem to be kind of discredited, right? Um, so it would have had to have been an extraordinary genius uh, to um, wrap that all up in a story that also at the same time uh, revivified people's faith in the federal government, which is really kind of the only kind of referee insurance company, you know, uh, uh, um, political formation uh, that can, um, for example, counteract the ravages of the market, right? right. So that would have been very tricky. <laughs> yes. Well, I would not have envied uh, someone who tried to do that. I mean, Ted Kennedy did try to do it, but it was it was all kind of based on nostalgia, right? Yeah, it, and, and it, seems, it seems also like part of this anti-Washington, uh, you know, sentiment that wound up uh, the, the contradictions of Jimmy Carter's campaign, that one of the things that wound up kind of killing him is the fact that it's like, you know, oh, I'm from outside Washington and I'm going to bring in all these people into my administration who are Washington outsiders. And then it turns out that they all, and they had enormous resentment for people in Washington and people in Washington had enormous resentment for them. Uh, so that created an immediate dynamic of dysfunction. Uh, do you think he could have handled that better in, in terms yes. of, yes. Okay. I think a Barack Obama did a pretty good job of saying, I'm not one of these guys and yet, you know, hired experts now yeah. for good and ill. Right. I mean, experts contain, you know, those establishment experts have certain biases too. I mean, perhaps these are the experts who, you know, kept this in Afghanistan for an extra 12 years, right? Mm -hmm. um, but a, a lot of this was um, based in a lot of thin skin among what they called the Georgia mafia, Jimmy Carter included. A lot, of, a lot of it was exasperated, exacerbated, increased by the way they just handled their interpersonal relationships um, they thought they'd won, you know, being outsiders so they could outside, uh, govern being outsiders, all kinds of stories about this in the book. And uh, if you want to kind of read a great article about this part of why the Carter administration failed, I write about it. I cite it. Uh, a guy named James Fallows, who's still around. He's a writer for the Atlantic Monthly, who was a Carter speechwriter, wrote this amazing book called The Passionless Presidency. Not a book, an article in the past, called The Passionless Presidency that came out just as the Carter administration was kind of losing its popularity in 1979. And he tells extraordinary stories about how um, the people inside the White House sabotaged their prospects because of their contempt for everyone who knew how to do things in Washington, how to do things in Washington. Yeah, and, and that contempt for Washington and, and not just, you know, abstractly on the campaign trail, but personally, while you're like in the White House, it seems like, is that part of the reason that even though he had a, a democratic Congress to begin with, he, he, he was not able to 
detail uh, with the, the people in Congress who are Democrats and no less contempt for the rest of the establishment of Washington. Yeah. Right. And um, in a lot of ways, I say he was our first I alone can fix it president. He thought I'd go alone on the mountaintop, you know, and study a problem. And then I'd come down from the mountaintop and present a solution. And since I won the presidency, uh, the rest of the party should just kind of go along. Yeah. And um, that has never been how things worked, right? That's not how politics works. He could be a brilliant politician at bringing people along to his ideas. In fact, one of the things I really appreciated about one of the most famous foreign policy things he did was, was bringing the leaders of Egypt and Israel together in a summit and getting them to agree on a peace deal. If he had handled you know, the Democrats in Congress with the kind of wisdom and patience and sophistication with which he handled these very difficult men, the leaders of Egypt and Israel, Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin, his presidency would have been very different. Yeah, it's a shame. I mean, did, did you feel that throughout the process of writing this book? Like, God, man, if you would just- Yeah, like totally. I mean, it starts, it's, it really just starts right away. And of course, there's lots of books I read about Jimmy Carter and you just can't avoid it. But it's literally like, you know, like the first week of his presidency, you know, he's like, I'm going to, I've, so I've come up with a problem, a solution to this problem, what to do about Vietnam, people who were drafted to go to Vietnam and didn't serve, like who went to Canada. And he just kind of announced the solution, which is a profoundly political problem because people have very emotional investments on all sides of this question. Yeah. And you're like, Jimmy, maybe you should have discussed it with people first before you just kind of announce it, you know, yeah. again and again and again and again, you know, a day in and day out almost. Yeah, well, I mean, even at his inauguration, you talk about how there were people who were supposed to be invited who had driven all around the country for Jimmy yeah. Carter and didn't get an invite. And then yeah. you know, some random guy in their town got an invite. Yeah. It just seemed like kind of a mess. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and the uh, I brought this up with a friend of mine who's a, a psychology grad student and his take, and I'm curious your, your take on this. I, I, I don't want to go too deep into people's I like psychology. psychology about presidents, man. I have no hesitation to do it. <laughs> okay, good. It's, it feels, Oh, I don't want to psychologize. Bring it on, man. Good. Okay. Well, there's, um, there's uh, statistically, there's an association with liberal types tend to rate higher on levels of openness and mm -hmm. uh, conservatives tend to rate yeah. higher levels. Almost definitionally, yes. Yes, well, yes. Uh, like orderliness, um, conscientiousness, those kinds of things. Do you think that part of, uh, I mean, maybe there is some argument to be made that um, liberal progressive types by definition are trying to do new and uh, be open to new ideas. Do you think that there's, a potential that those same people are just not as well equipped psychologically to manage the rigors of, of the White House. Like you mentioned Barack Obama, but he seemed fairly. No, no I don't think that's true. I think that um, Franklin Roosevelt was both very progressive and very open-minded in the way he lived his life. You know, he, he was perfectly comfortable surrounding himself with people who had radically different ways of seeing the world than he did. He was perfectly content experimenting in a way you know, no president ever had before. Um, and he was also a brilliant person at managing personnel, yeah. you know, coming up with goals. Uh, he, you know, was very good at, you know, basically the poker, poker playing aspects of governance, not showing, not showing your cards. 
And it was said that he had a second, second class intellect, but a first class temperament. And what that meant was partially from kind of coming from this old money world in which um, basically all the best qualities of the old order of the American elite kind of concentrated in him that he had this wonderful self-consciousness, self-confidence, I should say, uh, and didn't really care what people thought about him and had, was just a wonderful judge of character, character, a very old fashioned word, which basically meant your kind of internal core of your being. That's a big part of like the Philip Blash stuff. No one had character anymore. You know, they were kind of flitting about wherever they saw something attractive, right? So he was brilliant at, you know, <laughs> getting along with Stalin, getting along with conservatives, getting along with liberals, uh, um, using the um, crises of the day as a rhetorical lever to kind of get across reforms that no president had ever been able to get across. I think Kennedy in a lot of ways was similar, although he wasn't quite as progressive. Um, So I don't think that that holds as a rule of thumb, fortunately. Okay. I think AOC is a great internal compass, for example. Yes. Yeah. Um, Just, you know, something I wanted to throw out there and get your thoughts. And and being rigid, you know, is a terrible way to govern too. Right. I mean, you think Ted Cruz would be a good president, right? Yeah. (laughs) That's all kinds um, of reasons beyond ideology that I think he'd be a terrible president, right? Oh, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. He doesn't have character, right? He's he's just, you know, running for the camera and you know, not really thinking in 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 mature ways about you know running for the camera or running away if he's in Cancun, you know. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um good time. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> I wanted I, I wanted to make sure I asked you about Reagan himself. Um, yeah. One of the things I thought was really interesting about this guy is that and, and the last chapter of the book is, is I think it's called something like uh, Carter is smarter than Reagan. And it's, it's in quotes. And it, it's it's superb because it really sums up a lot of liberal culture and it sums up a lot of um, our, our political culture as a whole, because people kept underestimating this guy as just this buffoon, this dumb actor. He yeah. was actually a very clever politician. Um, very and I think we might've talked about this a little bit last time, but I, in the context of this new book, I want to ask you, his, a lot of his political training he got when he was doing these, um, these general electric um, yeah. sort of advertisements and he'd go to the factories. How did right. that help him get in, like sort of tap into what became of the, the Reagan Republicans, a lot of working class. Uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's a very big part of it. So of course he has this hard scrabble upbringing. He eventually finds his way into radio in the, in the, in the thirties and then moves to Hollywood and wins the screen quest. And next thing you know, he's an actor, has a relatively successful career until he doesn't. Right. And, and his career was really on the outs when he, received this very providential uh, job with General Electric, which was always this company that it kind of marketed itself as more than just a company, you know, this kind of community that embodied values and and was on kind of the cutting edge of this kind of uh, media, you know, way of thinking about capitalism, right? And um, so they had a TV show called, called General Electric Theater, which was an anthology show, which meant there was a different basically a different story every week, you know, kind of like the Twilight Zone or something like that. But it was all different kinds of stories, you know, dramas, comedies. And so he was the host and he would kind of, he was the the kind of the anchor that held the thing together. 
And part of the job was he would go from factory to factory. General Electric had hundreds of them all over the country, manufacturing everything from, you know, giant turbines for dams to like, you know, resistors. And um, his mentor is a guy, and I write about this more in um, Invisible Bridge, named Lemuel Bulware, who um, was a labor relations specialist for GE, who kind of came up with the idea that the way to basically defeat the unions was through kind of mass media techniques, through persuasion, through marketing. And he would do things like do focus groups of the wives of the workers to see what kind of messages would reach them. You know, he would distribute all these kind of literature, you know, to try and turn the workers basically into native conservatives who identify with the company and say with their union. And lo and behold, Reagan suddenly has this guy as a boss. And one of the things he learned from this guy was conservatism because he hadn't been a conservative. Right. Uh, and another thing he learned from him was the idea that um, it should not be the case that blue collar workers working for wages should be natural liberals voting for the Democratic Party, you know, supporting the New Deal, that you could turn them into conservatives by using conservative themes, order, uh, basically that, that the company you know, basically the people who run companies know best, you know, this kind of industrial aristocracy and that they have your welfare at heart. And um, by talking to them and talking to them and talking to them and being a guy who had this extraordinary emotional intelligence and this desperate need, now we get into his psychology to kind of match his affect to that of his viewers and hearers in order to kind of get that energy back to him. He already long before he um, got involved in politics in the early 60s was um, magnificent at communicating conservatism to people who probably had only voted for Democrats since Franklin Roosevelt. And he um, used that very much to his advantage in his first political campaign in 1966, in which he was insane. So underestimated the guy he was running against for governor Pat Brown, the governor of California, um, basically sabotaged the uh, other candidates' campaign because he wanted to run against Reagan because he was so confident that he would lose. Where have I heard this? Again and again and again. <laughs> and, um, you know, he, Reagan was able to get all kinds of working class voters even then by, for example, uh, talking about the kids who were protesting against the Vietnam War at the universities as um, tying them at the hip to his opponent and the Democratic Party and claiming that they were privileged snobs who were pissing away an education that you, the working class guy, you know, who's showing up every day with your lunch pail at a factory have not been able to afford, right? Yeah. So he would, you know, kind of exploit their resentment at, um, you know, the people, uh, Richard Nixon, you know, uh, um, was very good at exploiting too, and um, was able to win enormous numbers of working class voters who, by the way, had done so well because of new, the New Deal and liberalism that there's one point in Nixon land where um, there was a very small crowd for Pat Brown at a Labor Day picnic, you know, the traditional kind of union Labor Day political meeting because everyone, all these guys were at their vacation cabins. Mm, yeah. yeah. So it kind of carries through to 1980 in which these people are called, quote unquote, Reagan Democrats. Right. And... and a huge part of it that you point out is this, um, you know, recognizing things like social issues could be uh, a, a lever to get people 
in right. sex is the Achilles heel of the Democrat, liberal Democrats, right? right? All these changing mores having to do with family and sexuality and gender that were kind of working their way through the institutions of middle-class life during the seventies from the 1960s. Yeah. And all these guys who were these new right organizers who wanted to organize discontent, they all had experienced the Goldwater campaign in which Goldwater kind of gave conservative ideology to the voters with the bark off with no trimmings, you know, basically we should, you know, privatize social security. We should end farm subsidies. You know, uh, we should, you know, um, go toe to toe with the Ruskies until the other guy blinks. Right. And this stuff was terrifying and he lost, you know, so basically these guys are like, wow, we could seduce voters by actually drilling down on the things that they're actually freaked out about in their everyday lives, you know, stuff about their daughters getting abortions, you know, or their wives, um, you know, um, uh, leaving them, <laughs> you know, or, or if you're a wife, you know, uh, these feminists, you know, um, you know, kind of granting this, this kind of undoing what seemed like this kind of God given uh, natural order of family life. And using that to kind of turn people into conservatives and then, you know, kind of making the pivot of saying, wow, have you realized how powerful unions are? You know, aren't they screwing things ever, you know, screwing things up? And um, Reagan was a wonderful figurehead for this movement because um, he did not scare people like, you know, Barry Coldwater did. He had learned uh, to kind of match the affect of his viewers by speaking by the 1970s and the 60s was a little different speaking to these kind of aspirational, optimistic tropes about, you know, American greatness and that sort of thing. Well, and one of the things that's interesting about abortion is that even Reagan himself was not <laughs> anti-abortion until very late, even in his political career. He kind right? of figured out his own way of being anti-abortion in the mid seventies. Yeah. Uh, and he had yeah, signed a very liberal abortion law in 1967 and later said, oh, they tricked me into it. You know, I didn't understand that the loophole was so big, but he's like, um, <clears throat> yeah, he, he kind of, you know, basically, um, which he was very good at doing, he was a very guileless guy who could come to kind of the, the appropriate conclusion in very kind of innocent and non-cynical ways, um, you know, worked his way to kind of the pro-life position um, with a kind of aching sincerity uh, that, you know, gave a certain kind of optimism to what could be a very ugly movement. You know, this was a time when people were starting to bomb abortion clinics. Yeah. And, and I, you must have been thinking during the writing of this, the parallels between Reagan and Trump, correct? I, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I can't not, right? Yeah. And, and the parallels and the differences, right? So, you know, Reagan is the guy who, you know, always has a smile on his face, even when he's delivering a dagger thrust. And, um, you know, he also, um, you know, really did express his politics in optimistic set of political terms instead of pessimistic terms. He was not the American carnage guy. He was the city on the hill guy. Yeah. And uh, he had some very different notions about things like immigration, right? He, he adored the idea of immigrants coming to America and actually tried to kind of uh, outflank uh, the Democrats on immigration from the left. He kind of changed his tune in Texas once one of, one of his advisors there said, you know, you can't get away with this. Um, but um, by the same token, you know, a lot of the same kind of resentments uh, at, you know, the snooty, you know, kind of condescending liberals are the same ones that have been weaponized, you know, all through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s into Trump. And so many aspects of Trump's coalition, um, you know, kind of 
um, are the uglier aspects of Reagan's coalition. I mean, you got to remember Jerry Falwell is at the same time as he's kind of becoming this national figure by backing Reagan, uh, comes out with a pamphlet saying, uh, it's going to be really awesome when we have this nuclear war that the Bible uh, 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 predicts we're going to have because then Jesus will come back, right? I mean, that's some ugly stuff. You know, I mean, you know, um, Jerry Fowler, who says, you know, homosexual just as soon kill you as look at you, right? Uh, Reagan would never say anything like that. Yeah. Well, it, it's one of the things that seems like sort of the through line here is that um, it feels to me like a lot of Republicans in the 70s who had previously been uh, you know, in favor of abortion rights and then turn against it. It seems like a cynical um, just way to capture votes. Yeah, I mean, certainly it was for a lot of them. It was for George H.W. Bush almost certainly, right? I mean, I literally have the moment on the campaign trail in New Hampshire where he's like, these abortion people are bird-dogging me everywhere. And a famous pundit from the time, Robert, Robert Novak's like, well, why don't you change your position? <laughs> and he just uh, literally does. <laughs> and it's... Um, but it worked. I mean, it, it largely worked. Do you do you have any insight into why it seems like if, you know, someone tells you that they're pro-gun, you know, you can kind of figure out the rest of their politics. If someone tells you right. that they're, you know, pro-free choice or whatever, um, you can kind of figure out the rest of their politics. Why are these social issues so... Uh, tightly glued to yeah it it, it 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 gets down to kind of philosophically or psychologically or characterologically what conservatism is right which is kind of a reverence for hierarchy and authority right and you know constituted authority right and even the individualism is based on the idea that the people who own corporations you know did so by into into their individual enterprise and kind of deserve to be the you know economic aristocrats so we shouldn't you know you know, um, mess with their prerogatives too much. And, you know, that's the same way of thinking that says the father knows best and he should be running the family, right? That's the same way of thinking that, you know, um, um, people shouldn't be screwing, you know, people are not married to because, you know, God ordained a certain kind of order for the family. And they all kind of reduce to this kind of great chain of being. Like basically these people are on the bottom, these people on the top. You know, this is permitted. This is not permitted. You know, it's 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 a right wing way of thinking, right? Mm -hmm. And they're organically tied to each other, uh, even kind of the connection between the family and the economy, right? Uh, are kind of you know uh, form this organic whole and kind of conservative ideology. There's a there's there's you know a, a picture of the world that conservatives have. It's not a pluralist ideology where like you're like, oh, it's great if some people you know have a traditional nuclear family. Uh, and some people, you know, have, you know, polyamorous families, you know, no, there's one way to do it. The liberal says, you know, I'm not anti, you know, traditional family. It's just like, you know, um, I'm just think that the traditional family is one kind of family among others that comes out literally in the book where um, uh, Jimmy Carter um announces very early in his campaign in 1976 that he promises to have a White House conference on the family. And what he means by that is, um, you know, basically figuring out the federal policies that help people take care of their kids, right? And as the kind of quote unquote pro-family movement 
rises up on the right, they have a very idea, a different idea of what the government should do about the family. It means families should be certain ways and not others, right? So somewhere along the line, Jimmy Carter in his liberal guys says, oh no, we're gonna call it the White House Conference on Families instead of the family. And that's just one example of, you know, a discontent that they're able to organize on the left, on the right, you know, um, sex is the Achilles heel of the liberal Democrats. The idea that there are different kinds of families and that they're each equally legitimate is something that you see being debated all through that period of the book. Yeah. And and I don't want to take up too much of your time here. So I just just have a couple more uh, questions, but one of the things I wanted to ask about is um, you talk about uh, in, in the book, just going back to what we said about the, you know, Carter is smarter than Reagan. Uh, oh yeah. We didn't talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. The, That's well, why they thought they were going to win because they were going to get him on stage in a debate and people yes. realize how it is without realizing that Jimmy, that Ronald Reagan had never lost a debate in his life. And, and that's, that is the thing where I, I remember hearing during the 2016, uh, you know, debates, you know, Oh, just wait until, Ted Cruz gets on a stage with Trump. Ted is, you know, he's a smart, he's a Harvard lawyer. Like, and then it just, it totally. Hillary Clinton. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you should, you should have seen the debates between uh, John Kerry and George W. Bush, probably a little before your, your time, but there was one in which, I mean, George Bush sounded like, sounded like he was stoned. I mean, it was just unbelievable. Same with, well, there was a joke about it on Saturday Night Live um, from uh, the 1988, which is, you know, back when I got to college. Do you remember who was running in 1988? Uh, George H.W. Bush and was that Walter Mondo? No, that was 84. You see these, <laughs> not All quite right. charismatic enough, George Dukakis. And um, uh, George Dukakis was played on Saturday Night Live by this guy, um, uh, what's his name though? The, 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 the guy who did the, uh, the, 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 the liar. Uh, anyway, one of the characters was played by Michael Dukakis, and they're in a debate, and George H.W. Bush is speaking some gibberish, and the guy who plays Dukakis, who was very much this intellectual, whose slogan was um, competence, not ideology, <laughs> and better jobs at better wages, um, uh, he says, I can't believe I'm losing to this guy. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a bit of a trope. Well, but why do you think that is? What, why do you I, think that they, it seems like liberals overvalue um, Cognition. Yes, when in fact, you know, a lot of mass media is all about the lizard brain. Like, why do you think that they have failed? And, 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 you know, the most effective liberals have always been the ones who've been able to convey emotional content, you know, whether Jimmy Carter with his little, you know, singer songwriter thing, or Barack Obama with his, you know, uh, yes, we can, or John F. Kennedy with his, you know, I passed the torch to a new generation of Americans to Franklin Roosevelt, you know, talking about the money, driving the money changers from the temple. These are very simple, short, sharp, emotional messages, which do, you know, get at different parts of the lizard brain, right? Uh, more aspirational parts, maybe a little higher order, but still they're emotional messages, right? Whereas, um, you know, liberals are, are heir to an enlightenment tradition uh, when it comes to politics and when it comes to everything in which evidence and logic, right? Should be the drivers of policy and too many think that should be the drivers of politics too. You know, we can make the scales fall from their eyes if we just, you know, give them an effective argument. One of the things I point out is that in the vast history of human beings, you know, the idea of making your decisions about your life based on these strangers far away that we call experts is very new, Yeah. right? Most, most human beings evolved to basically follow their tribe, you know? 
Uh, and that's a lot of what we see in the, you know, tragic um, uh, um, COVID masking and vaccination situation, right? Um, you know, I mean, a lot of the reason why people defer to experts in World War II, you know, was tribal, right? Uh, if we, if, if COVID was World War II, we'd all be speaking German, you know? This, this, you know, this toxic um, mixture of our earlier theme, we talked about individualism, decline of institutions, cynical conservatives, you know, uh, and, you know, lo and behold, you know, it's, um, you know, suddenly their constituency is cannon fodder, like it's World War One. The last sort of subject I wanted to ask you about, and this is a big one, so, you know, um, take it. You know, the better, man. Ronald Reagan used to say, "You can't hit it. You can't hit a softball out of the park." Why did he say that? Because he didn't want easy questions. Oh, I see. <laughs> um, his, when his aide wanted to write questions from in advance, he, he 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 welcomed hard questions, which Jimmy Carter didn't appreciate. <laughs> yeah, and, and uh, oh, you froze. Yeah. Did I just blow your mind? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, I, I totally I broke the space time. Um, what so on, on that note, um, when it comes to foreign policy, there's a lot we could talk about with Jimmy Carter, um, but particularly the Iran hostage crisis. It seems like the um, conservative sort of conventional wisdom on that is basically uh, Jimmy Carter uh, projected weakness to the world and that in turn led to, uh, you know, emboldening uh, those who overthrew the, the Shah and uh, also- and, and in Afghanistan, yeah. Yes. Um, how, how close to accurate is that? Or is this just totally, um, you know- That's it's, it's a cynical politics. I mean, if you look at Iran, you know, Jimmy Carter was following, you know, the bipartisan policy going back to Nixon. You know, and uh, it was based in the same kind of tragic, you know, misunderstandings of the rest of the world that we see, you know, across the sad sweep of America's quasi imperial adventures. I mean, Iran, a lot of ways, was an imperialist client state of the United States, right? And the Shah was an autocrat that we back to the hilt, and Jimmy Carter back to the hilt, right? And when it comes to Afghanistan, one of the fascinating things about it is it was. In, universally interpreted at the time by Jimmy Carter, among others, as um, basically this um, first kind of thrust in this imperialist push by the Soviet Union uh, that probably had as its aim, you know, taking over the Persian Gulf itself and thereupon the world, right? When if you actually look at the history of it, it was the biggest clusterfuck you can believe uh, in which basically um, elements of contingency of chance of personality uh, backed the Soviet Union into a fight that most of the leaders there had no interest in pursuing. Their leader was half dead, half in the bag, you know, drunk, you know, and there was this debate between hardliners and, 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 and kind of um, the diplomatically inclined within the Politburo that uncannily represents 
you know, the kind of debates Americans were having about Vietnam. And as we know, it was the kind of last gasp of, you know, kind of a dying empire instead of, you know, the kind of um, aggressive thrust of a forward thinking one. So um, Jimmy Carter's responsibility for that, if anything, his responsibility was authorizing the CIA to do what America did in Vietnam in the early 1960s, which was basically to make mischief. And uh, his national security advisor, Zbigniew Brzezinski, who was basically this Cold War hawk who was, you know, wanted American military activity all over the country, all over the world, um, basically persuaded him that if you just kind of um, uh, poke in the right places, you know, the bear will collapse in Afghanistan and, you know, we know what happened next. Yes, you know, we, we can, you know, look up, look, look, open the computer and, you know, put on the New York Times website and see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, well, look, Rick, I've really enjoyed uh, reading this whole series that you put out. Uh, it, it's been a privilege to talk to you about it directly. Um, I know you don't want, you don't want people, you know, prying into what you're doing next, but whatever you do next, um, I'm looking forward to it. You'll be the first to know. All right. <laughs> Good. Rick, uh, pleasure. And it, Reagan Land is available, paperback. Uh, In paperback. Yes. Um, cool. And, and you have a website or something like that that people can... Uh, RickPerlstein.net, although I don't really update it. Rick Perlstein on Twitter. Sweet. All right, Rick, have a great rest of your day. Peace be upon you. <laughs> and you as well. Bye-bye. Thank you to Rick Perlstein, and thanks for listening to Dunk Tank. I'm Duncan Gammy. See you next time.